TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. On Friday, December 22nd, the president signed the First Step Act, a criminal justice reform bill that passed Congress with broad and rare bipartisan support. While this legislative achievement drew praise from political partisans on both the right and the left, the exact implications of the bill's specific provisions are not really widely understood. The First Step Act, while commendable, is only that, a first step and one that took immense political pressure over many, many years to reach. It's a mistake to label it as sweeping reform when the vast majority of prisoners in this country are in state and local facilities, and it's telling that the marginal reforms uh, to the federal system in this bill are the most far-reaching in a generation. Nevertheless, the First Step Act represents a major fork in the road in our country's conversation about crime and punishment. So what does this step mean for incarcerated people, for law enforcement, for reform advocates like us at Just City? And what are the next steps we need to take? In the next few episodes of The Permanent Record, we're going to speak with several experts on the policies and the politics of the First Step Act and what it means when we're looking to build a more just city. Since 2010, Carrie Johnson has been a justice correspondent for National Public Radio's Washington Desk. She's covered a wide range of emerging justice issues, law enforcement stories, and legal affairs. She's also a frequent guest speaker on these topics for organizations like the American Bar Association, the American Constitution Society, and the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, among others. Most importantly, perhaps, Carrie is one of, if not the first, repeat guests on the permanent record. Carrie was kind enough to endure an interview last year in the first of a four-part series we did on the media. For this episode, though, we spoke to Carrie about the practical implications of the First Step Act and the politics that made its passage possible. Thanks so much, Carrie, for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. So, Carrie, we're, we're talking about the First Step Act, and uh, it's you know it's being widely praised by its proponents, of course. Um, but it's the first real meaningful piece of federal criminal justice reform legislation in, in, in decades, actually. So is this praise warranted? Why is this a big deal? Or why isn't it a big deal? I think I started covering uh, some of these issues in 2012 after former Attorney General Eric Holder gave a speech at the American Bar Association conference uh, seeking to advance the idea of sentencing reform. And of course, Josh, during the Obama years, there was this unusual um, bedfellows coalition of conservatives and liberals and sentencing advocates who had come together seeking a, a really revolutionary package of changes to the justice system. What has just passed Congress, um, which is a real achievement, is something smaller than what was on the table in the Obama years. Uh, uh, President Obama and Eric Holder and then Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates were just not able to get uh, the Congress to do anything while they remained in office. So it is uh, somewhat remarkable that the Trump administration has delivered on this promise. And of course, it's something that Presidential Advisor Jerry Kushner has been advancing for a long time. He's been holding roundtables in the White House uh, featuring all kinds of advocates. He got President Trump to show up at one or two of those roundtables and then, of course, uh, got the president to appear uh, and make public statements and tweets in support of this legislation, <laughs> which may have made the difference and actually, uh, and actually got Senator Mitch McConnell to move on this. And McConnell had been very reluctant to put forward this proposal for a vote. And of course, when he finally did, it passed the Senate and the House overwhelmingly. 
always with the tweets, huh? So you're giving the the administration quite a bit of, of credit there, and and it maybe it, it's it's well deserved. What else has changed since uh, since you heard that speech in 2012? I mean, there's, there's obviously been a lot of grassroots pressure that's built uh, over the time. Uh, has has the membership uh, in in both houses? Is that has what what impact did that have on it? I think that there was a lot of money and a lot of um, personal commitment in the advocacy community. And when I say the advocacy community, I don't just mean the American Civil Liberties Union or the Brennan Center for Justice or organizations like Families Against Mandatory Minimums that have been pushing some of these changes uh, for decades now. I also mean people um, like uh, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, um, Coke Industries, and a number of conservative or conservative-leaning outfits um, who were able to really persuade Senator Chuck Grassley, who um, led the Judiciary Committee in the Senate and had been very reluctant years ago to embrace some of these changes. Grassley became a leading proponent of them, and, and Grassley and a number of other folks, including Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky, had really been pressing uh, in the Senate and outside the Senate to do something on this. What changed is that they were able to enlist enough Democrats led by Dick Durbin of Illinois to, to buy in to this package. What Republicans had been talking about for a long time was basically um, a, a plan that would allow more rehabilitation and training um, available for inmates and they would be able to earn good time credits and maybe able to leave prison early if they were nonviolent offenders and had, um, participated in this programming. What Durbin brought to the table was a few additional changes that would affect people inside prison now in their sentences. And that was enough to bring enough Democrats along uh, and on board with these these changes. Yeah, so you kind of had these two ideas, this, this reentry component where how, how are we going to get people ready to go back to work? And that appealed maybe to the right. And then to the left, you had these these things that would impact people directly immediately who are in the system. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. And, you know, I need to make clear that for many advocates on the left, this first step bill is not nearly uh, far enough. This legislation, which is billed as a first step in a process, is something uh, that is controversial because a number of lawmakers and people in the advocacy community feel like a lot more needed to be done to help um, some of the drug offenders already in the system and people who have yet to commit nonviolent crimes and yet to be punished. Um, this legislation does help some of those people in some ways, but it doesn't go nearly far enough. And the concern from some of these advocates is that uh, Congress has achieved all that it is going to on sentencing <laughs> and justice overhaul issues. And a lot of people are going to be left um, in prison or left on the side of the road without any assistance. Yeah, and, and what does, I mean, does the bill do any, any are we leaving anything on the table? Are, are there changes in the roles and responsibilities of law enforcement, for instance, or, or defense attorneys, or uh, any other impact on, on the incarcerated people and their families that we're leaving behind? Well, um, the bill would end some kinds of automatic life sentences under um, 
what was considered to be the federal three strikes um, law for drug felonies. And it also would give judges some more discretion to avoid imposing mandatory minimum sentences. And maybe most importantly, some people were left in prison without assistance after Congress last acted on some of these issues in 2010. There was this longstanding concern dating back to the 80s that people were punished differently and far more harshly if they were in possession of crack cocaine, cocaine in powder form, cocaine in rock form, as opposed to cocaine in powder form. And and there were enormous racial uh, and ethnic disparities and the the kinds of people who um, were punished under those offenses. And what this First Step Act will do is allow something like 2,600 people to go back to the courts and petition judges for release because they were they were stranded after the laws changed and were made more lenient for people caught with crack cocaine. So there are real-world effects, both in terms of uh, punishment, but also in terms of um, treatment. So there are organizations like FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, had pushed hard for uh, changes to the Compassionate Release Program in prison. This is, program is supposed to be open for people who have terminal, terminal illnesses or people who need to get out to help family members who are very, very ill. In practice, the Federal Bureau of Prisons hardly ever lets any inmates out early under those programs. The hope is that uh, for advocates that um, the changes in the First Step Act will allow more people to uh, take advantage of compassionate release. Yeah. And just for perspective, I mean, correct me if I get these numbers wrong, but this, uh, the federal prison system is, is roughly 180,000, 190,000 people um, out of the 2 million uh, across the country who are incarcerated on any given day in jails and prisons. And uh, so that we're already talking about a very small number of people impacted by, uh, you know, seemingly such a big deal. Um, and so those other, you know, uh, almost 2 million people who, who are, are uh, in custody today in states, across the country. What does this mean uh, for states like them? How do, how do you see, I know you spend a, most of your time these days covering Washington, but uh, you, you do uh, you know, see what's happening out uh, in the rest of the country around this issue. What does it mean to a place like Tennessee, where, for instance, our, our prison population and spending on prisons continues to grow, unlike most other states? How can, how can we make the most of this in a place like Tennessee? You know, conservatives who have backed some of these changes at the federal level say they were inspired in part by by states, often red states, states like Georgia and Texas, that earlier embraced some of these changes. And so um, the the hope for these advocates is that changes at the federal level and, and even this kind of half a loaf, half measure for step at will inspire more states to uh, change their practices and maybe do uh, more than tinkering to do more revolutionary overhauls of their systems. You know, some states have really embraced that issue and others have not. And I am not sure, based on my read of what I saw when I was in Memphis um, and in conversations with people like you, Josh, that Tennessee is, is embracing some of these changes with open arms. And really, um, for politicians, there is a concern. There was a concern within the Trump White House, and there is a concern in many state houses that your one bad story um, from regretting making these changes. So you're, you know, um, it's been many years now, but that Willie Horton ad that seemed to torpedo uh, the presidential run of Michael Dukakis many years ago, it still haunts a lot of lawmakers who uh, 
may otherwise be more open to yeah. embracing changes to justice. Yeah. And I've got to tell you, there's something else that really um, struck me this morning. There was a little, a little squib that passed the wire that said, um, in addition to the, the um, maybe thousands of um, inmates of color who are going to try to take advantage of, um, of, of some of these changes in the First Step Act, um, the former secretary of Bernie Madoff, convicted fraudster Bernie Madoff <laughs> in New York, is also going to try to use the First Step Act to appeal um, and, and to at least petition to a court and win early release from prison. So it shouldn't be overlooked that... Um, while many Democrats and liberals were embracing these kinds of legislative changes at the federal level to help uh, inmates of color and reduce racial disparities, that certainly inmates of means are also going to oh, try to take yeah. advantage of these these uh, these changes. Come one, come all, huh? <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I want to ask you about the uh, a different bill that, that may hopefully is on your radar. I know you've covered in Memphis at least uh, the the oversight of the Department of Justice of our uh, juvenile justice system here. Earlier this month, uh, both the House and the Senate, I don't think the president has signed it yet, but uh, both House and Senate passed the Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act, uh, which uh, expired, it was originally a 1974 act, expired in 07, and, and so uh, it kind of quietly went through uh, also this month. It's uh, uh, going to have some, hopefully, some funding behind it that will help uh, reduce racial disparities, which is something that we've uh, found here in Shelby County in Memphis, uh, and to do several other significant things within the juvenile justice system. Have you followed that bill, and what do you know about it, and what can you tell us about the likelihood of it being signed? I've been talking with advocates for a couple of years now, youth, youth justice advocates, about the need to the need to do something on the um, the juvenile justice side. I do know that that legislation was bipartisan as well, and it was kind of puzzling as to why it took so long to get across the finish line. I will tell you that um, even though Congress is on board with this, it's not at all clear that the Trump Justice Department um, is going to be as active in these areas as the Obama Justice Department was or the Obama. Obama administration writ large. I know that um, uh, both the Justice Department and the Education Department, for instance, have um, basically revoked guidance um, to federal agencies and and to schools about punishment and racial disparities and punishment and 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 other. Um, in other issues that have been kind of top of mind in the juvenile justice arena. So I'm not clear uh, whether Congress is uh, speaking with one, uh, is taking action with one hand and the Trump administration is, is, um, perhaps complicating matters. But that happens, Carrie? No, but I mean, <laughs> every once in a while, right? <laughs> Well, well, regardless of whether that's true, and, and <laughs> do, do these two legislative achievements, you know, bipartisan support for bills like uh, the First Step Act and the Justice uh, and Delinquency Prevention Act, does this uh, portend anything uh, of large significance for the discourse in the years ahead? How, how do you how do you see it uh, shaping up when, when we can uh, when our Congress in its <laughs> current condition can pass these things? What do you think uh, this this points to later? You know, if you if you talk to really optimistic people like Mark Holden from um, uh, Coke and Holly Harris, who runs um, a bipartisan uh, justice action network, they will tell you that they think this is the first of many steps at the federal level to um, to 
try to overhaul justice issues. And this is the first bite, but they're, they're going to be doing a lot more. And if you talk with people, say, at Families Against Mandatory Minimums or Sean Hopwood, a Georgetown professor who himself is um, a returning citizen, a former inmate, um, they say that um, they do think um, there is a lot more to be done here, um, reforming the Bureau of Prisons, which currently is without a full-time leader, uh, making sure that halfway houses and space in halfway houses actually exist for the people who want to take advantage of the First Step Act. I've got to tell you, though, uh, speaking with current and former prosecutors and other people who've been watching this space for a long time, there is a lot of mistrust out there. They wonder really why some conservatives have bought into these issues and can campaigned on them and made promises based on these issues. And they are not clear whether um, the next step here may be some kind of adjustment to the intent standards and laws that are used to prosecute companies for environmental violations or corporate fraud. And I'm going to be watching that space in 2019 to see what exactly the Senate and the House of Representatives do in those arenas. Yeah, and as you watch, uh, it will be a brand new House. Uh, We will have a a Democratic majority there in just a a number of days. What does that mean for for criminal justice uh, issues uh, and, and law enforcement issues that you cover? I've got to tell you, my sense is that in the the major committees, including the Judiciary Committee and the Oversight and Government Reform Committee, among others in the House, that the new chairman are going to be overwhelmed with issuing subpoenas um, to the Trump administration and trying to uncover or get more detail on uh, financial malfeasance and what they perceive as mismanagement in the executive branch agencies. So I think oversight is going to be a major league priority of the Democratic House. They've also talked about wanting to do more on health care and more affirmative legislation. I don't see uh, right away how justice reform and justice overhauls play into that agenda. It may be something we see in 2020, but then again, 2020 will be an election year and filled with campaigning. My prediction, and it could be wrong, is that uh, justice issues may be on the back burner, not the front burner in 2019. Yeah. Um, what about uh, if I'd be I'd be remiss having you uh, on the phone if I didn't ask you about the the situation with the Department of Justice and the Attorney General and uh, and if there's any any angle that impacts. I mean, you mentioned earlier um, sort of the the Trump administration uh, and, and their Department of Justice not having I think you said an appetite for uh, things around juvenile justice, and we've seen that locally very clearly that the, the Department of Justice oversight ended just. Uh, just last month, in fact, uh, of our juvenile justice system. Is there any way that it pl- that, a, that a permanent attorney general is appointed and it plays out uh, in, in the favor of systems like ours in Shelby County that still struggle with, with huge racial disparities and other, other serious constitutional problems? Is there any, any hope for, for kids and families in systems like ours? I don't want to be um, a storm cloud, but if um, Bill Barr, who was the attorney general uh, for a, a few years in the 1990s and is President Trump's nominee to succeed Jeff Sessions as the permanent attorney general of the United States, if Bill Barr has a hearing in early 2019 and is in fact confirmed as the attorney general, I do not think that civil rights is going to be a major part of his agenda. Um, Bill Barr is really interested in uh, violent crime and drugs, and he has a rather 
harsh uh, view of those issues dating back to the 90s, but continuing up into this day, if you uh, take his public statements as a guide, Bill Barr is likely to be interested, I think, too, in the national security functions of the Justice Department. And while we do actually have a Senate-confirmed head to the Civil Rights Division, a guy named Eric Dryband, he's a guy who made his reputation in the legal community for defending companies accused of employment discrimination rather than doing big investigations of uh, police departments and misconduct in police departments, for instance. Eric Dryband has talked a lot about wanting to prosecute individual wrongdoers who commit hate crimes, but these are these are not people who have evidenced a lot of interest in um, either juvenile justice or uh, sentencing reform and changes that would make the system less punitive. Well, we'll we'll let you have a pass on the storm cloud. You're just reporting. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Quite okay. but one one last maybe maybe a little bit more fun question. We've got a huge field shaping up for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020. Are there any uh, potential candidates whose names have been floated out there that have any sort of leg up on these issues of criminal justice and and, and uh, reforms like that? Josh, I'm going to be watching very closely the Senate Judiciary Committee in 2019 because at least two new, rather new members of the committee um, seem to be um, preparing for presidential bids. They are Cory Booker of New Jersey and Kamala Harris of California. Both of them have been strong supporters of the First Step Act and other changes um, that would make uh, the justice system uh somewhat less tough for nonviolent offenses. And I think that they may be um, eager to use their platforms on the Judiciary Committee to advance uh, their candidacies for uh, the presidency in 2020. So watch that space. I would also point out that Kamala Harris is the former Attorney General of the state of California, and people are just now starting to look at her record as the AG for that state. Uh, That's something I hope to dig into a, a bit in January as well. Well, you'll, you'll have a lot to do next year and the following. So uh, our thanks to you again for joining us uh, on The Permanent Record and, and for giving us such great insight into what's happening up in Washington. Thanks, Carrie. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thank you. That was Carrie Johnson of NPR News, in conversation and on The Permanent Record. My thanks to Carrie for taking time out during the holidays to talk with us. Special thanks again to our old friend Carrie Hayes for producing this episode as well. And as always, thanks to Carla and Gilworth at the OAM Network for their support of the podcasting community in Memphis. Check out some of their other shows at theoamnetwork.com. Jeff Hewlett wrote and performs She Got Gone, original theme music for the permanent record. His newest album, Around These Parts, is out now. Look for Jeff playing out and about and go pick up a copy for yourself. I'm Josh Spickler, and this is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at justcity901. Make sure you're subscribing to The Permanent Record. Uh, Leave us a like. Give us a rating, a review, wherever you listen to us. We're on Spotify now, too. Follow along. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. TheOAMNetwork.com Power to the podcast.